0: to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, part two, chapters seven and eight. In the previous chapters, Ned Land had expressed a want to try to escape the Nautilus should they get an opportunity near Europe, to which Professor Aranax agreed. In the following chapters, our adventurers enjoy passing through the Mediterranean at a remarkable speed. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath, and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do Chapter 7 The Mediterranean in 48 Hours The Mediterranean, the blue sea par excellence, the great sea of the Hebrews, the sea of the Greeks, the Mare nostrum of the Romans, bordered by orange trees, aloes, tie and sea pines, embalmed with the perfume of the myrtle, surrounded by rude mountains, saturated with pure and transparent air, but incessantly worked by underground fires, a perfect battlefield in which Neptune and Plato still dispute the empire of the world. It is upon these banks, and on these waters, that Michelet, that man, is renewed in one of the most powerful climates of the globe. But, beautiful as it was, I could only take a rapid glance at the basin, whose superficial area is two million of square yards. Even Captain Nemo's knowledge was lost to me, for this puzzling person did not appear once during our passage at full speed. I estimated the course which the Nautilus took under the waves of the sea at about 600 leagues, and it was accomplished in 48 hours. Starting on the morning of the 16th of February from the shores of Greece, we had crossed the Straits of Gibraltar by sunrise on the 18th. It was plain to me that this Mediterranean, enclosed in the midst of those countries which he wished to avoid, was distasteful to Captain Nemo. those waves and those breezes brought back too many remembrances, if not too many regrets. Here, he had no longer that independence and that liberty of gait which he had when he was in the open seas, and his Nautilus felt itself cramped between the close shores of Africa and Europe. Our speed was now 25 miles an hour. It may be well understood that Ned Land, to his great disgust, was obliged to renounce his intended flight. He could not launch the pinnace, going at the rate of 12 or 13 yards every second. To quit the Nautilus under such conditions would be as bad as jumping from a train going at full speed, an imprudent thing, to say the least of it. Besides, our vessel only mounted to the surface of the waves at night to renew its stock of air. It was steered entirely by the compass and the log. I saw no more of the interior of the Mediterranean than a traveler by express train perceives of the landscape which flies before his eyes, that is to say, the distant horizon, and not the near objects which pass like a flash of lightning. We were then passing between Sicily and the coast of Tunis. In the narrow space between Cape Bon and the Straits of Messina, the bottom of the sea rose almost suddenly. There was a perfect bank on which there was not more than nine fathoms of water, whilst on either side the depth was ninety fathoms. The Nautilus had to maneuver very carefully, so as not to strike against this submarine barrier. I showed Concierge on the map of the Mediterranean, the spot occupied by this reef. "'But if you please, sir,' observed Concier, "'it is like a real isthmus joining Europe to Africa.' "'Yes, my boy.' It forms a perfect bar to the Straits of Libya, and the soundings of Smith have proved that in former times the continents between Cape Bocco and Cape Furnia were joined. I can well believe it, said Concierge. I will add, I continued, that a similar barrier exists between Gibraltar and Ceuta, which in geological times formed the entire Mediterranean. What if some volcanic burst should one day rise these two barriers above the waves? It is not probable, Concierge. Well, but allow me to finish, please, sir. If this phenomenon should take place, it will be troublesome for Monsieur Lesseps, who has taken so much pains to pierce this isthmus. I agree with you, but I repeat, concierge, this phenomenon will never happen. The violence of subterranean force is ever diminishing. Volcanoes so plentiful in the first days of the world, are being extinguished by degrees. The internal heat is weakened. The temperature of the lower strata of the globe is lowered by a perceptible quantity every century to the detriment of our globe, for its heat is its life. But the sun, the sun is not sufficient, Concierge. Can it give heat to a dead body? Not that I know of. Well, my friend, this earth will one day be that cold corpse. It will become uninhabitable and uninhabited like the moon, which has long since lost all vital heat in how many centuries in some hundreds of thousands of years my boy then said concier we shall have time to finish our journey that is if ned land does not interfere with it and concier reassured returned to the study of the bank which the Nautilus was skirting at a moderate speed. During the night of the 16th and 17th of February, we had entered the second Mediterranean basin, the greatest depth of which was 1,450 fathoms. The Nautilus, by the action of its crew, slid down the inclined plains and buried itself in the lowest depths of the sea. On the 18th of February, about three o'clock in the morning, we were at the entrance of the Straits of Gibraltar. There once existed two currents, an upper one, long since recognized, which conveys the waters of the ocean into the basin of the Mediterranean and a lower counter-current which reasoning has now shown to exist indeed the volume of water in the Mediterranean incessantly added to by the waves of the Atlantic and by rivers falling into it would each year raise the level of this sea for its evaporation is not sufficient to restore the equilibrium. As it is not so, we must necessarily admit the existence of an undercurrent, which empties into the basin of the Atlantic through the Straits of Gibraltar, the surplus waters of the Mediterranean. A fact, indeed and it was this countercurrent by which the Nautilus profited. It advanced rapidly by the narrow pass. For one instant, I caught a glimpse of the beautiful ruins of the Temple of Hercules, buried in the ground, according to Pliny, and with the low island which supports it, and a few minutes later, we were floating on the Atlantic. Chapter 8 Vigo Bay The Atlantic. A vast sheet of water whose superficial area covers 25 millions of square miles the length of which is 9,000 miles, with a mean breadth of 2,700. An ocean whose parallel winding shores embrace an immense circumference, watered by the largest rivers of the world. The St. Lawrence, the Mississippi, the Amazon, the Plata, the Orinoco, the Niger, the Sengal, the Elbe, the Loire, and the Rhine, which carries waters from countries across the globe. Magnificent field of water, incessantly ploughed by vessels of every nation, sheltered by the flags of their nation and which terminates in those two terrible points so dreaded by mariners, Cape Horn and the Cape of Tempests. The Nautilus was piercing the water with its sharp spur, after having accomplished nearly ten thousand leagues in three months and a half a distance greater than the great circle of the Earth. Where were we going now, and what was reserved for the future? The Nautilus, leaving the Straits of Gibraltar, had gone far out. It returned to the surface of the waves, and our daily walks on the platform were restored I mounted at once accompanied by nedland and concier at a distance of about 12 miles cape st vincent was dimly to be seen forming the southwestern point of the spanish peninsula a strong southerly gale was blowing the sea was swollen and billowy It made the Nautilus rock violently. It was impossible to keep one's foot on the platform, which the heavy rolls of the sea beat over every instant. So we descended after inhaling some mouthfuls of fresh air. I returned to my room, concierge to his cabin, But the Canadian, with a preoccupied air, followed me. Our rapid passage across the Mediterranean had not allowed him to put his project into execution, and he could not help showing his disappointment. When the door of my room was shut, he sat down and looked at me silently. Friend Ned, said I, I understand you, but you cannot reproach yourself. To have attempted to leave the Nautilus under the circumstances would have been folly. Ned Land did not answer. His compressed lips and frowning brow showed with him the violent possession this fixed idea had taken of his mind. "'Let us see,' I continued. "'We need not despair yet. "'We're going up the coast of Portugal again. "'France and England are not far off, "'where we can easily find refuge. "'Now, if the Nautilus, "'on leaving the Straits of Gibraltar, "'had gone to the south, "'if it had carried us towards the regions "'where there were no continents,' I should share your uneasiness, but we know now that Captain Nemo does not fly far from civilized seas, and in some days I think you can act with security. Ned Land still looked at me fixedly. At length his fixed lips parted, and he said, It is for tonight i drew myself up suddenly i was i admit little prepared for this communication i wanted to answer the canadian but the words would not come we agreed to wait for an opportunity continued netland and the opportunity has arrived this night we shall be but a few miles from the Spanish coast. It is cloudy. The wind blows freely. I have your word, Monsieur Aranax, and I rely upon you. As I was silent, the Canadian approached me. Tonight, at nine o'clock, said he. I have warned Concier. At that moment, Captain Nemo will be shut up in his room, probably in bed. Neither the engineers nor the ship's crew can see us. Concier and I will gain the central staircase, and you, Monsieur Aranax, will remain in the library. Two steps from us, waiting my signal. The oars... The mast and the sail are in the canoe. I have even succeeded in getting some provisions. I have procured an English wrench to unfasten the bolts which attach it to the shell of the Nautilus. So all is ready till tonight. The sea is bad. That I allow replied the Canadian. But we must risk that. Liberty is worth paying for. Besides, the boat is strong, and a few miles with a fair wind to carry us is no great thing. Who knows, but by tomorrow we may be a hundred leagues away. Let circumstances only favor us, and by ten, or 11 o'clock, we shall have landed on some spy of terra firma, alive or dead. But adieu now, till tonight. With these words, the Canadian withdrew, leaving me almost dumb. I had imagined that, the chance gone, I should have time to reflect. And discuss the matter. My obstinate companion had given me no time, and after all, what would I have said to him? Ned Land was perfectly right. There was almost the opportunity to profit by. Could I retract my words and take upon myself the responsibility of compromising the future of my companions? "'Tomorrow, Captain Nemo might take us far from all land.' "'At that moment, a rather loud hissing noise told me that the reservoirs were filling, "'and that the Nautilus was sinking under the waves of the Atlantic. "'A sad day I passed between the desire of regaining my liberty of action And of abandoning the wonderful Nautilus, and leaving my submarine studies incomplete. What dreadful hours I passed thus. Sometimes seeing myself and companions safely landed, sometimes wishing, in spite of my reason, that some unforeseen circumstance would prevent the realization of Nedland's project. Twice I went to the saloon. I wished to consult the compass. I wished to see if the direction the Nautilus was taking was bringing us nearer or taking us farther from the coast. But no, the Nautilus kept in Portuguese waters. I must therefore take my part and prepare for flight. My luggage was not heavy, my notes nothing more. As to Captain Nemo, I asked myself what he would think of our escape, what trouble, what wrong it might cause him, and what he might do in case of its discovery. Failure. Certainly, I had no cause to complain of him. On the contrary, never was hospitality freer than his. In leaving him, I could not be taxed with ingratitude. No oath bound us to him. It was on the strength of circumstances he relied, and not upon our word to fix us forever. I had not seen the captain since our visit to the island of Santorin. Would chance bring me to his presence before our departure? I wished it, and I feared it at the same time. I listened if I could hear him walking the room contiguous to mine. No sound reached my ear. I felt an unbearable uneasiness. This day of waiting seemed eternal. Hours struck too slowly to keep pace with my impatience. My dinner was served in my room as usual. I ate but little. I was too preoccupied i left the table at seven o'clock a hundred and twenty minutes i counted them still separated me from the moment in which i was to join ned land my agitation redoubled my pulse beat violently i could not remain quiet i went and came hoping to calm my troubled spirit by constant movement. The idea of failure in our bold enterprise was the least painful of my anxieties, but the thought of seeing our project discovered before leaving the Nautilus, of being brought before Captain Nemo, irritated, or, what was worse, saddened at my desertion, made my heart beat. I wanted to see the saloon for the last time. I descended the stairs and arrived in the museum, where I had passed so many useful and agreeable hours. I looked at all its riches, all its treasures, like a man on the eve of eternal exile, was leaving, never to return. Those wonders of nature, these masterpieces of art, amongst which, for so many days, my life had been concentrated. I was going to abandon them forever. I should have liked to have taken a last look through the windows of the saloon, Into the waters of the Atlantic. But the panels were hermetically closed, and a cloak of steel separated me from that ocean which I had not yet explored. In passing through the saloon, I came near the door let into the angle which opened into the captain's room. To my great surprise, this door was ajar. I drew back involuntarily. If Captain Nemo should be in his room, he could see me, but hearing no sound I drew nearer. The room was deserted. I pushed open the door and took some steps forward, still the same monk-like severity of aspect. Suddenly, the clock struck eight. The first beat of the hammer on the bell awoke my dreams. I trembled as if an invisible eye had plunged into my most secret thoughts, and I hurried from the room. There my eyes fell upon the compass. Our course was still north. The log indicated moderate speed, the manometer a depth of about sixty feet. I returned to my room, clothed myself warmly. Sea boots, an otter skin cap, a great coat of bisous lined with seal skin. I was ready, and I was waiting. The vibration of the screw alone broke the deep silence which reigned on board. I listened attentively. Would no loud voice suddenly inform me that Ned Land had been surprised in his projected flight? A mortal dread hung over me, and I vainly tried to regain my accustomed coolness. At a few minutes to nine, I put my ear to the captain's door. No noise. I left my room and returned to the saloon, which was half in obscurity, but deserted. I opened the door, communicating with the library. The same insufficient light... The same solitude. I placed myself near the door leading to the central staircase and there waited for Ned Land's signal. At that moment, the trembling of the screw sensibly diminished, then it stopped entirely. The silence was now only disturbed. By the beating of my own heart suddenly a slight shock was felt and i knew that the nautilus had stopped at the bottom of the ocean my uneasiness increased the canadian signal did not come i felt inclined to join ned land and beg of him to put off his attempt I felt that we were not sailing under our usual conditions. At this moment, the door of the large saloon opened, and Captain Nemo appeared. He saw me, and without further preamble, began in an amiable tone of voice. Ah, sir, I have been looking for you You know the history of Spain. Now, one might know the history of one's own country by heart, but in the conditions I was at the time, with troubled mind and head quite lost, I could not have said a word of it. Well, continued Captain Nemo, you heard my question. Do you know the history of Spain? Very slightly, I answered. Well, here are learned men having to learn, said the captain. Come, sit down, and I will tell you a curious episode in the history. Sir, listen well, said he. This history will interest you on one side, for it will answer a question which doubtless you have not been able to solve. I listen, Captain, said I, not knowing what my interlocutor was driving at, and asking myself if this incident was bearing on our projected flight. Sir, if you have no objection, we will go back to 1702. You cannot be ignorant that your king, Louis XIV, thinking that the gesture of a potentate was sufficient to bring the Pyrenees under his yoke and impose the Duke of Adieu, his grandson, on the Spaniards. This prince reigned more or less badly under the name of Philip V, and had a strong party against him abroad. Indeed, the preceding year, the royal houses of Holland, Austria, and England had concluded a treaty of alliance at the Hague, with the intention of plucking the crown of Spain from the head of Philip the and placing it on that of an archduke to whom they prematurely gave the title of Charles II. Spain must resist this coalition, but she was almost entirely unprovided with either soldiers or sailors. However, money would not fail them, provided that their galleons, laden with gold and silver from America, once entered their ports. And about the end of 1702... They expected a rich convoy, which France was escorting with a fleet of 23 vessels, commanded by Admiral Chateau-Renard, for the ships of the Coalition were already beating the Atlantic. This convoy was to go to Cadiz, but the Admiral, hearing that an English fleet was cruising in those waters, resolved to make for French ports. The Spanish commander of the convoy objected to this decision. They wanted to be taken to a Spanish port, and, if not to Cadiz, into Vigo Bay, situated on the northwest coast of Spain, and which was not blocked. Admiral Chateau Renaud had the rashness to obey this injunction, and the galleons entered Vigo Bay. Unfortunately, it formed an open road which could not be defended in any way. They must therefore hasten to unload the galleons before the arrival of the combined fleet, and time would not have failed them had not a miserable question of rivalry suddenly arisen. You are following the chain of events? asked Captain Nemo. Perfectly, said I, not knowing the end proposed by this historical lesson. I will continue. This is what passed. The merchants of Cadiz had a privilege by which they had the right of receiving all merchandise coming from the West Indies. Now to disembark these ingots at the port of Vigo was depriving them of their rights. They complained at Madrid and obtained the consent of the weak-minded Philip that the convoy without discharging its cargo, should remain sequestered in the roads of Vigo until the enemy had disappeared. But whilst coming to this decision, on the 22nd of October, 1702, the English vessels arrived at Vigo Bay, when Admiral Chateau Renaud, in spite of inferior forces, fought bravely. But, seeing that the treasure must fall into the enemy's hands, he burnt and scuttled every galleon which went to the bottom with their immense riches. Captain Nemo stopped. I admitted I could not yet see why this history should interest me. Well, I asked. Well, Monsieur Aranax, replied Captain Nemo, we are in Sat Vigo Bay, and it rests with yourself whether you will penetrate its mysteries. The captain rose, telling me to follow him. I had time to recover, I obeyed, the saloon was dark. But through the transparent glass, the waves were sparkling. I looked. For half a mile around the Nautilus, the waters seemed bathed in electric light. The sandy bottom was clean and bright. Some of the ship's crew, in their diving dresses, were clearing away half rotten barrels and empty cases. "'from the midst of the blackened wrecks. "'From these cases and from these barrels "'escaped ingots of gold and silver, "'cascades of piestres and jewels. "'The sand was heaped up with them. "'Laden with their precious booty, "'the men returned to the Nautilus, "'disposed of their burden.' and went back to this inexhaustible fishery of gold and silver. I now understood, this was the scene of the battle of the 22nd of October 1702. Here on this very spot, the galleon laden for the Spanish government had sunk. Here Captain Nemo came, according to his wants to pack up those millions with which he burdened the Nautilus. It was for him and him alone America had given up her precious metals. He was heir direct, without anyone to share, in those treasures torn from the Incas and from the conquered of Ferdinand Cortez. Did you know, sir? he asked, smiling, that the sea contained such riches. I knew, I answered, that they value money held in suspension in these waters at two millions. Doubtless, but to extract this money, the expense would be greater than the profit. Here, on the contrary, I have but to pick up what man has lost, and not only in Vigo Bay, but in a thousand other ports where shipwrecks have happened and which are marked on my submarine map. Can you understand now the source of the millions I am worth? I understand, Captain. But allow me to tell you that in exploring Vigo Bay, you have only been beforehand with a rival society. And which? A society which has received from the Spanish government the privilege of seeking those buried galleons. The shareholders are led on by the allurement of an enormous bounty For they value these rich shipwrecks at 500 millions. 500 millions they were, answered Captain Nemo. But they are so no longer. Just so, said I. And a warning to those shareholders would be an act of charity. But who knows if it would be well received. What gamblers usually regret above all is less the loss of their money than of their foolish hopes. After all, I pity them less than the thousands of unfortunate to whom so much riches well-distributed would have been profitable, whilst for them they will be forever barren I had no sooner expressed this regret, than I felt that it must have wounded Captain Nemo. ''Baron,'' he exclaimed with animation, ''do you think then, sir, that these riches are lost because I gather them? Is it for myself alone, according to your idea, that I take the trouble to collect these treasures?" Who told you that I did not make a good use of it? Do you think I am ignorant that there are suffering beings and oppressed races on this Earth? Miserable creatures to console, victims to avenge. Do you not understand?" Captain Nemo stopped at these last words, regretting perhaps that he had spoken so much. But I had guessed that, whatever the motive which had forced him to seek independence under the sea, it had left him still a man, that his heart still beat for the suffering of humanity, and that his immense charity was for oppressed races as well as individuals. And I then understood for whom those millions were destined which were forwarded by Captain Nemo when the Nautilus was cruising in the waters of Crete.